Welcome back to Behind the Wealth. I'm your host, Roger Abel, joined by Elias Randall today. And uh, how are we doing today, Elias? I'm doing good. 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 How good. are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. I'm getting ready for the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we're filming right before that, so we'll see if we get to celebrate with some friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be an odd Thanksgiving this year because of all the rules. We can't have as many people as normal, but I'm still looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. So one of the, we were reading last week, a couple of white papers that came through our desk, and we obviously, you know, review these every week, see what's coming through, see what's relevant. But we had one come through called the six psychological barriers to investing, and we talk about this a lot in normal everyday occurrences with clients, and we kind of believe that the behavioral portion of how people invest probably predetermine how well they're going to do more than the actual investments they own themselves. Um, so let's talk about that white paper. It's put out by Franklin Templeton. Uh, there's really six six um, different barriers that they talk about, but maybe let's talk a little bit about the, the opposing voices in our mind that make us behave the way that we actually do. Yeah, so we basically have, with any decision, investment-related or... Um, any decision for that matter, what you're going to eat for lunch. We utilize two different areas of our brain to make decisions. And the frontal cortex is where we basically process information and then try to use our logical thinking to make a decision. And then we also have an area of our brain called the, uh, the amygdala that that's more of the emotional part of our brain and kind of the like survival and instinct that's um, so that's kind of the area where our emotions drive our decisions. So just kind of like a simple overview today, we're going to be talking about, uh, six kind of psychological things that help with having success in investing. And really it's all about just kind of understanding how we process information, but then also let's make decisions for our portfolios with logic and statistical analysis and good information as opposed to information that elicits a knee-jerk reaction from us because or any or uh, an emotional response yeah I, I think that's the most important most of us live in the emotional world right i mean we get emotional about things so it's really fighting those two voices in our head should i eat the cake or the salad going to feel better if I have the salad, right? better for me. But man, the cake looks really good. And it's going to, you know, life's short. I should enjoy life. It's kind of those two different things. And it's just like investing, right? Like when the markets are down and things are scary, you know, we gravitate towards safety. Hey, you know what? Let's take the safe route, just sit this out where we maybe we should be opportunistic in that manner. Um, and one of the, the places we actually see this is, really the first kind of oh, what we'd call the barriers to investment su success would be either availability bias or recency bias, which we talk about this a lot. Um, I remember back in 2015, we really started talking about this because of how people were feeling coming out of 2009 when the market went down dramatically, went down 37%. Um, and we used to, you know, we would do educational we taught educational classes for people. And Franklin Templeton had actually released a survey that said, hey, what what is the sentiment of people versus the reality of what was happening? 
And most of the time, the sentiment of the people was the market is bad, even though in reality it was going up. So in, in 2008, 2009, the market went down 37%. In 2009, it was up 26 and a half. Two thirds of the people that, that was surveyed on the Franklin Templeton annual sentiment survey believed that the market was down, even though it was up 26 and a half percent because of the recency bias. And we're actually starting to see that again today. The market's near positive or break even, depends upon when this show is actually going to be aired. Uh, but people still think it's been a horrible year because of what's happened right now. If you own certain asset classes, it still may be a horrible year, but for the broad indexes, they're either break even slightly positive um, for the year. Yeah, and, I mean, we and we're seeing the exact same thing from investors today. They're like, man, things are so bad. Well, now the good news is your portfolio is up on the year. There's really nothing to be excited about. Or my famous saying this year is, it's been a very eventful, non-eventful year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, that and that really it happened so fast. It was like super exciting. Mark was down and then came back. But just like you, how you've been talking with clients, it's been a very eventful non event year. Um, you know, we've had several reviews even even recently, which it's kind of good and bad because some clients just don't know. So they just expect their portfolio to be down, which one hints to recency bias is really a thing that people go through. Um, but maybe a, I guess kind of a positive note for us is they're not looking at their statements and dwelling over it. So I guess some of our coaching of let's just let the plan work itself out has uh, taken effect for a lot of people too. No, I think that's exactly what's really happened is we've worked with these individuals and, you know, we tell them that don't pay too much attention. I mean, be knowledgeable, know what you own, but there's no reason we have to check our balance every single day. That will just make you go crazy. Um, another guy in our office always talks about and kind of relates investing to real estate, right? Well, people check their 401k balance every day. They check their investment account balance every day. Do you go check the home, the price of your home every day? No. Because you can go to Zillow and check the price of your home every day. Well, it's gonna go up or down. It's not relevant unless you're gonna sell your home in the near future. So it's kind of the same thing with your investments. Unless you're going to go sell the investment in the near future, then it becomes relevant. But it also begs the question, should you own that investment if you're going to be selling it soon? Um, so I, I believe that we have done a good job coaching people. Uh, many people, like you said, don't even know what their balance is because they check it quarterly. Well, if we do a review in October, November, they may not have checked the balance. A lot of people, the day they check the balance is the day we do the review. Um, you know, another thing to, to think about and why recency bias really drives poor investment behavior of a lot of people that don't have a financial advisor or don't have a plan. You know, we're big advocates of having a financial plan to help you make educated investment decisions. Um, and you take the emotion out of this process is if you look back over the last 30 years, um, the average annual return for the S&P 500 is 5% higher for that of over over that of the average equity investor. And, and most of that is driven because people have this inherent thought that they are going to be able to time a market. Yeah. 
And in the reality, the best market timer is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of market timing. And wh- which what's, equals what's that? You can't do it. You just can't. You just be invested all the time with the right asset allocation and a well-written financial plan, and you can start to avoid some of these pitfalls of massive underperformance. If you think about what we talk to people about is you should be looking for relative performance, meaning if you have a portfolio that has 70% of the assets invested in stocks or equities, mutual funds, ETFs, those type of things, then you should be hopefully capturing around 70% of the returns of the market. If there's a huge disconnect either one way or the other, that's kind of the red flag or the red light on, hey, what are we doing and what do we own here? And it can happen, right? There's years where you can have outperformance if you own certain sectors. So if your portfolio is more heavily weighted towards uh, technology this year, well, you may have outperformed the overall index depending upon which one you're benchmarking. Conversely, if you own large cap value, you probably have seen some underperformance. So don't get too excited about that, but just we need to be able to answer and tell people, hey, this is why we've performed the way we have. I adopted this mentality about 10 years ago. If I can't explain to you why the returns are of something that we own, then it's probably time to sell it. Kind of goes back to the last video. We shot a video about um, uh, the, the lessons we can learn from billionaires. And one of the hedge fund managers in there talked about how he had invested in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. scheme. But he got out because he couldn't figure out how 80% of the returns were accounted for. Well, that's no different than your portfolio. If you've got a portfolio that's, you know, 70% stock and you're making 2% a year and the market's doing 10 and you can't figure out why, it's time to have a rethink of what we're doing and kind of reset that. Um, And really what helps all that come to light is a good financial plan. And the vast majority of people don't have one. So if you are in need of a financial plan, you can go to btwellshow.com. There's a button to go request to start a financial plan and we'll help you do it. We're advocates for everybody to have one regardless if you have $5,000 or 5 million, it's meaningful for everybody. Yeah, yeah, and probably one of the best, one of the great things about having a good financial plan is when we have years like this year where our recency bias is telling us, oh, the market's down, I lost all this money. Um, having a good plan can help you understand that, well, one, I need to stick to the course because I've outlined goals that help dictate this plan and I'm on track to reach those goals. So there's no sense in doing anything, um, you know, doing anything dramatic or making any big change. and. It brings you back to let's use facts, let's use statistical analysis, let's just make good decisions that aren't driven by either fear or greed or any other emotion that um, our investment portfolio can cause us. Well, I I talk about this a lot. I say I, I believe my opinion's good, right? Of right. what we should yeah, do with yeah. investing, but we always want to validate that opinion with statistical analysis and make it more fact based versus opinion based. Yep. Um, which which really leads us into the next one, and that's the the idea of herding. And we're actually starting to see this, and herding's happened about, you know, I can think of three times off the top of my head when herding was very, very relevant, and I feel like it's happening again today. But herding is when investors pile into one segment or asset class 
in the fear of missing out or the fear of making a mistake. And we've seen that kind of in this COVID trade or, you know, piling into technology. I mean, technology is continually just being ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means people are going in. And part of this phenomenon, we've heard about the Robin Hood phenomenon. It's all the millennial investors. And I listen to CNBC all the time and Jim Cramer's like, you know, all these millennial investors bought all the things that we said you shouldn't. But so far, they've all been winners. Um, it doesn't mean they'll continue, but it's that hurting mentality. And if we think back to the three times, the first one was really the roaring 20s. From 1924 to 29, the market was up nearly 300%. Everybody piling in, 1929, it went down 48, right? Dot-com from 97 to 2000, up 294%. 2000 to 2002, 78% down in the dot-com sector. Real estate from 2002 to 2005, up 71, lost 35%. Um, the problem is the pain is so great for people, they forget about all the good, healthy things that happened before it. Because truth be told, if the market went up 300 and lost 50%, you're still you're up st 150%. Yeah, you're still doing pretty good. But everybody's focused on that one bad year. I mean, markets are positive 80% of the time, but people focus on the 20% that they're down because it just doesn't feel good. Yeah, and that's kind of where this whole idea of of hurting comes from because it's really, it's it's either you're scared to make a mistake or maybe you feel like you're missing out on an opportunity. And kind of one of the things that makes me think about is every now and then we'll have a conversation with either a potential client or a client and their reason for doing something was like a guy they drink with at the bar did it or their neighbor did it. And, it's, you know, it's like we all do this, have a beer in our garage and talk shop about whatever it is. But my, you know, my question to kind of some of those hurting ideas, oh, well, my neighbor did it, so I should do it, is, well, does your financial plan dictate that that's going to help you achieve your goals? Because if it doesn't, then, you know, maybe following the crowd in this situation is not a good idea for you. Right. Well, and it goes back to, for most people that have a well-crafted financial plan, you know, one investment that does superior doesn't really move the needle for their financial plan that much. No. But if, if they have that investment and it lost a significant amount of value because they were doing more speculating versus investing, that actually could have a detriment. And that's why you know, having a well-diversified balanced portfolio for most people makes more sense than the actual individual security selection. We're not saying owning individual stocks is bad by any means, but it's really more of a speculative encounter for most people if they have a financial plan than really how am I going to get from A to Z. It reminds me of the individual we worked with here a couple of months ago that wanted to start investing in real estate. Well, they said, we want to invest in real estate knowing, regardless of what happens with that real estate, our financial situation works out at retirement. So we kind of worked back backwards into it and said, hey, this is what you need to be putting away to make sure all of your goals are met. And then this is what you'd have left to go buy that real estate investment with because they didn't want to depend on the cash flow. They didn't want to depend on all those things to make it work. All the things that kind of get you in trouble, right? If you're dependent upon the yeah. $1,500 a month to make the payment and then they don't pay, which happened to people during COVID. Well, 
they're in a bad spot. So that's one of the things we can do. You know, if people say, hey, I want to own XYZ stock, great. Let's make sure all the other stuff is met before we start speculating into those areas. That really leads us into the, the third kind of roadblock of, you know, for investors, and that's loss aversion. And Jonas in our office talks about this a lot, that losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. Um, and it's just the pain, it's human nature that if something goes down, because you feel like it affects you more, you know, a bad thing, we all have this more human feeling that bad things are gonna happen versus when things are good, we just gain more confidence and it just doesn't feel as good when things go up as when the, as bad. It doesn't feel as good when things go up as bad as they feel when things go bad, if I, if I said that correctly. Yeah, people, and it like you said, it, it's human nature. The pain of the pain of loss, especially someone's portfolio, um, it's gonna be. It hurts more. You remember it more, um, you know. And you've been you've been an advisor for eighteen years, and how many times has let's say someone last year they were up, and this is just hypothetical, but they could have been up twenty percent last year, and um, now they're down like 8% this year and they're like worried about it. They're not worried about, they weren't that happy about up 20. Right. They're really concerned about minus eight or should we do something different or what's going on here? Or, you know, I had this situation happen back in March when the market went crazy. I had a person called me up and should we go all the cash? And she'd just taken out a large chunk of money out of her account. And I said, well, truth be told, the amount that your account's actually down right now is way less significant than the amount of money that you took out last summer. Like that had way more impact in your financial plan than this short-term loss. And fortunately, I was able to kind of talk her off the ledge of doing that by going back to the financial plan, quantifying why we needed to stay where we were. And she's been rewarded because she got it all back. But people don't think about their spending habits. They're more concerned about, hey, my portfolio went down $22,000 or whatever the number is but they'll take 22,000 out and not think a second about it because yeah. it's not a loss. They got some gratitude in return. You know, fear is what actually drives people to go to cash. And it's the one thing that, that the financial plan does is removes that emotion of fear from people because they can quantify it. I've said this for a long time. People like to be conservative when there's something unknown or they can't quantify why they're invested the way they should be. Once they see why they need to be there, the fear kind of goes away and they'll go more with the flow. Um, yeah, it's always good to remind people that you see these account balances go up and down, but the only time the balance is relevant is when we decide to sell. The short-term interim changes and it goes back to the Zillow and your home analogy. Well, the value of our home's only relevant on the day that you sell it. And it's the same exact thing with your investments. Now, you're going to get all of these different emotions over time, but the only relevant day is the time when you actually sell. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I actually saw uh, Warren Buffett commented on that on an interview I watched recently, and he kind of related it to um, farmland. And he said, he's talking about how the price of farmland fluctuates a lot. So, you know, farmers, your net worth goes up and down depending on the uh, the value of farmland and wherever they live. And he talked about how 
they don't make a knee-jerk reaction and go sell property. Selling property is a lot more difficult than selling a, a stock or a mutual fund. There's It's a bigger process. There's a lot more paperwork. There's more steps. So kind of the gist of what he was saying was when all you have to do is go click a button, it becomes very easy to give in and do that when um, really you'll be better served by either not doing anything or do the opposite and start buying more. And one of the um, kind of the interesting graphs, which uh, if you're if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see it, um, but it showed, so the dot-com bubble, the graph showed markets coming down and outflows of money into funds is also going up. So as the market's going down, people are selling. And then the graph also shows as the market's at an all-time high, fund flows into equity investments was also at an all-time high. So it's really the exact opposite. Everyone thinks the most basic rule in finance is, oh, it's easy. You buy low and you sell high. And yes, that is right. But the reality of the situation is your average investor and most people, they do it exactly wrong. They invest when the market's high. And then when it comes down, they sell. So if you can really kind of get yourself in a position where just eliminate those simple mistakes and if you can afford it, if the market's down 20%, 30% or less, 10%, if you can afford it, do the opposite of what everyone else is doing and start buying more. In the long run, you will most likely be rewarded for doing that. Well, we're, we're here in the Midwest and we use this analogy a lot. Your, your shares of your investments is similar to acres of land. Really, during the accumulation phase, your only goal is to accumulate as many of those acres as possible because those acres are going to generate revenue for you down the road. Um, one of the easy ways that everybody should be thinking about how to avoid this situation is just by having a very good systematic investment plan. And most people do, right? Mm-hmm. They're putting money into their 401k, maybe if they're, they qualify a Roth IRA or whatever it is, if, if you have money, just put it in systematically over time. But one thing I've noticed too about this whole loss aversion, which is different during COVID than it was during the financial crisis. During the financial crisis, when the market went down, I really had very few people calling me wanting to add more money. They didn't see that as an opportunity. They were very, very fearful. During, the, during COVID, it was different. I saw people and had people calling me saying, hey, is now a good time to buy? And, you know, I argue, arguably tell someone if you're young and investing for the long term, it's always a good time to buy. You know, and, right. and I also was thinking about something you mentioned about the fun outflows and inflows. What those people are actually trying to do is time the market. Yep. And once you pull the trigger to go out, get out, it's hard to get in. We've talked about this a lot. You know, if you get out, when are you getting back in? I had a couple of people who wanted to go to cash before the election. If that's what it needs for you, that's what you need to sleep at night, fine. But let's have a plan to get back in. And that's what I told them. Like, what's our plan to get back in? It can't be based upon the price movement of the market because either you're going to be greedy or fearful. So I gave him a timeline. I said, we have to be back in the market by this date, regardless of the price. And we actually validated it with their financial plan. The one person I can think of, I went and put all their money into cash and said, what's the probability of your success if you stay in cash for the rest of your retirement life? 
and it was very high. So I was able to quantify that that was still okay for them to do. So it really wasn't a market timing thing for them. It was, we would feel better if we preserved the capital, but we had a plan to get back in. And that's what most people don't have when they hit the sell button. What is the plan to get back in to the market? Right, right. Because like you said, the selling's the easy part. I mean, the market goes down a little bit and you sell, well, there's like a short-term sense of relief, but how much is enough that it's gone down that you're gonna come back in? And then on the flip side, how much have you missed out now if you get back in? Well, then so you, you get just, the panic. Like, right. man, I made a huge mistake. I just missed out on the 15% that it went up. I just, that it's human emotion. That's why there has to be a plan associated with your investment decisions. But that leads us into the next one, which is present bias. And that's what people think. And this is funny because this had me thinking of an appointment we were on about six years ago and what people's expectations are. Oh, and yeah. We didn't talk about this before the show, but you're already giggling. Uh, but we, we often overvalue the immediate rewards and what's happened this year or the year before. Um, and delaying the gratification is really challenging. And we, we met with an individual. This I don't remember the year. It was five, probably five years ago, six years ago. You probably remember it. And I asked the individual, what has to happen for you to feel happy with your progress? And she looked me right in the eye and said, I need to make 16% a year. And I kind of chuckled and I thought she was joking with me. Right, and just kind of like a little test. Like, let's see if this guy, yeah, if how he's gonna answer. Yeah. <laughs> I've been around the block long enough to know I can't do that. I can't do that on a regular, regular basis. And right. she goes, well, that's what the market did last year. So that was her expectation for the long-term going forward. And we had this conversation that it wasn't probably realistic and at the end of the day we ended up not engaging with her any further because she really expected 16 percent because that's what happened last year so you know what happened last year is irrelevant you need to look at this long-term trend to start to build expectations for your portfolio yeah and if i remember correctly she was buying her investment strategy at that time was to buy an etf that tracked the s p 500 at the beginning of the month and then sell it at the end of the month. And this was a strategy she got from a finance professor, a friend of hers, which is fine. Um, kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier. Don't do something just because your neighbor does it or someone you work with does it. And I've, I follow a lot of financial experts, watch a lot of financial media, and I have never, other than speaking with her, I've never heard of buying on the first day of the month and selling at the last day of the month is like a prudent strategy to make money trading investments. Well, if if memory serves me correct, I actually asked her how much money she'd made doing that. Yeah. And it was like zero, it was, it was minimal. But I think the whole point of that is what's happened present or presently is what people expect to happen going forward. And it's just really not that realistic. Um, so one of the things people can do is just, you know, to combat this presence, presidency bias is just continually save on a systematic basis, delay the gratification of things, right? Mm -hmm. we, we believe that if it goes up 30%, everything's going to be good. Well, it probably doesn't matter because one year it's going to go down 30%. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a good, <clears throat> a good starting point, especially for young people um, or really for anyone, get started start saving, try to save 10% of your 
income towards your long-term goals, that's a good starting point. And if you're young enough, that will probably be um, sufficient enough if you do that for your whole life. And just know that with that 10% of your money, you're delaying some, uh, you're delaying short-term reward for long-term success. Yeah, you might have to delay the fancy car and buy a less fancy car. Right? right. But it doesn't mean you can't live your lifestyle. It's just prioritizing how we spend those dollars. And we talk about that, and Jonas did in his book, The No Budget Lifestyle, that, hey, if, if Starbucks is important to you or vacations are important to you, make that part of your budget, it should be the first thing, not the last. Right. Right. If, if cars aren't important to you, then they should be the last thing in your budget. If they're important, they should be one of the first things after we save our 10% because we need to make sure we have already set this glide path that we're going to be good in the future. But most people do this. They put together this budget and it's mortgage company, car payment, student loan, food, all these other bills. And then at the bottom, it gets down to them. Right. And it's like, oh, there's zero left for me, where in reality, you should be at the top taking the first 10% of what you make each week. Think about this. If you worked a 40-hour work week, if you just took the first four hours you worked each week and paid yourself with those four hours, so let's say you make 25 bucks an hour. So the first four hours, that's the, I'm going to take the first four hours, which is 10%. It's $100, and I'm going to keep that. Then after that, that can go to everybody else. That's the kind of the mind shift that people really should be That's making is, yeah, I'm working all these hours, but if I do a budget that starts with who I owe first, and then I'm last, I'm working 36 hours before it ever gets to me. Right. So if you think about that, <laughs> right. you're doing all this work for other people. The first four, six, 10 hours of every work, every work week should be your money. Yeah, and that, and just the kind of the mentality of paying yourself first and making yourself the priority, that is a huge mind shift. And, you know, for all of the financial gurus that are out there, because there, there's a lot of ways to be successful um, in financial planning. I think we both agree on that. Um, but I've a lot of times with young people, um, I always tell them, I'm like, you going to Starbucks once a day and you ordering pizza on the weekend, going out, doing the things you like, owning a vehicle you want, those things are not stopping you from being successful with your investment planning. And me, when I make decisions, I like to, I just like to simplify things. And for me, when I was younger, the idea of paying myself first for me, it just clicked. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. So if I'm the biggest priority in the budget, well, that makes it easy to save this 10% because everything else comes after that. And, you know, and we're talking about psychological things and making decisions, just a kind of a paradigm shift in your thinking from, okay, I got to pay my house. I got to pay this. I got to pay that. The paradigm shift to, well, first I need to pay myself first just that step can help you be successful. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I think people are actually starting to get it, the younger generation. And, and here's why. We ran by an article on businessinsider.com, and they had these six facts about millennials and investing, which I thought was fascinating because my generation, my generation doesn't save anything. We are just the spending debt 
generation. We're just going to get, <laughs> we can't delay gratification. We need to have it now. Yeah. But millennials are a little different. And maybe right. it's because they saw their parents go through the financial crisis and saw some of those strugglers like, you know, I'm not going to put myself on that same glide path. But um, one of the things they found with millennials, one, they're more open about their money than their parents, which means they're more willing to share information, which I think when you share information, it's how you learn and communicate better. If you, if you think about when we were growing up, it's taboo to talk about how much money your parents make or how, what they do with their life was always taboo. It's almost like a dirty word. If you mention money around your family and it really should be more of an open communication because if it's not, what happens? We have surprises at some point in time. The second thing, millennial women are more likely than their mothers to out earn their partners, which is really fascinating. You think about this, like the women are stepping up and taking the lead financial role in lives. And I can think about a few friends of mine. It's how it is. Yeah. They're wives. I have one of my uh, guy I went to high school with. He's a stay at home dad, which is cool. It, the roles have actually reversed. Millennials have um, credit card debt. They still have credit card debt, but they have less than the, the previous generation. So they're not using credit cards as much. Um, most millennials think they have less debt than their peers. Uh, millennials think that they're financially better off than their peers. And millennials are more positive about their finances than Gen X, which if you think about that, they, they just feel better about everything, even though they went through all, you know, 2008, 2009, and now this. Yeah, and I think this could, this might actually start to kind of maybe cause some shifts in financial planning as far as, because I feel like we spend so much time on coaching and the right behaviors and because it's counterintuitive and the things we're talking about today, like a lot of these things, a way to, to overcome it is to do the opposite of what you feel you should do. Well, now there's a whole generation that kind of the data is suggesting, well, they're doing these things right. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how to, I mean, we're going to be able to help them, but it seems like everything we've talked about was how people do things wrong. And then we found this where younger people are more interested, they're more engaged, they're making better decisions. And I actually think, uh, I just saw Jim Cramer, he went on a big rant about how Younger investors aren't selling. They're not doing the things that I we was, that we say we, last, they should do. I think it was last Friday, I, probably last Friday or yeah. Thursday. He he went on this rant that it's they don't ever sell, which it's what we've been talking to people about for ten years. Buy and hold this thing and let it work out. If you're buying good stuff, the other yep. thing that that came out of that article is that they believe there's nothing wrong with hiring a professional to help you. We've talked about this for a long time. Yeah, right. I don't mow my own grass. I don't clean my own teeth. I don't change my own oil. You do brush your teeth. I right? do brush them, but I don't. But I don't go to the dentist. I mean, I'm not the dentist. I'm right, not right, right. the tax guy. I'm not the the lawn service. All those things are delegated and lets me focus on what I'm good at, and that's this and my family, right? But they're doing the same thing. They're saying, hey, instead of me trying to pick my own investments, I'm willing to go hire someone to help me get across the finish line. Where right. my dad's generation, which was dot com it was cool to pick your own investments yeah they think they can still do it and maybe they can but more than likely they're not right. going to be that successful doing it right and keep in mind hiring a professional isn't 
admitting you can't do it. I know that we have we have a lot of clients that could manage their own money, but they've decided to delegate that part of their life just because they they can and they see the value in it. So just because you hire a professional, that's not saying, well, I'm not I can't figure this out. I'm sure you can figure it out on your own, but you're deciding to it's almost like a lifestyle decision or just like you can mow your own lawn. You don't because you don't want to. It comes and there's down, nothing wrong with that. It comes down to the three reasons people hire financial advisors. Time, desire, and knowledge. We become the yeah. time for people, the desire for people, or knowledge. And I'll go to this. When, when COVID happened, my truck needed an oil change. I drive a diesel truck. And I had the oil change scheduled. My wife's like, you're not going to go get your oil changed, are you? Like, you're not going to go in that <laughs> store. Because it was right when it first happened. It was unknown. You know, they said all bars and restaurants, everything's closed, all this stuff. So I'm like, I guess not. I, I guess I'll go do it myself. Here we go. So <laughs> I get on YouTube, Google my truck, YouTube, over to Amazon. I oil, like, I order the big pan that collects the oil. I order the oil filter, the best oil money can buy. And I got, like, $180 in all this stuff to change my oil. Well, I want to tell you something. Is the did it ever get did it ever get done? Not by me. <laughs> All the stuff is still in my garage. This great, great bottle of I don't even remember Formula One oil or whatever I have. I mean, it's all still there, but I'm just like, you know, I don't want to go down there with a wrench and unscrew this thing and put it together wrong. And my desire to learn to do it wasn't that great. Right. And I don't have the knowledge. Could I get the knowledge? Yeah. But in my back of my mind. I'm going, man, but what if I mess something up? This is an expensive car. Why would I want to try to do this on myself and mess this up? I'll just take it, drop it off, and figure out a different way than doing it myself. Yeah, and not only not only that, maybe making a mistake, but just your time. I mean, your hour and a half of struggling through learning how to do that and do it, you're probably better served being with your family or go out to eat. Just do, do something well, you want to do or... Would Actually, like to do. so I added it up. I literally, because I had to get, you know, like the little cart, you roll under the car and all this stuff. It was like 180 or $190. You know, I need like 10 quarts of synthetic, full synthetic oil. So it's not cheap. My normal oil change is like 100 bucks, maybe, let's call it, for full synthetic in this diesel truck. Yeah. Well, I spent 180 So my learning mistake actually cost me 180 plus the oil change that I paid to have done, so it was $280 for one oil change. Right. I've been way better off just saying, hey, I'm gonna figure out how to get this done without me doing it. So that kind of goes back to, you know, my time, desire, and knowledge of things and why I delegate those things in my life. So Elias, that leads us into the next, uh, or the fifth phase of this, and that's anchoring. And that's when we often focus too heavily on one, idea or piece of information when making decisions. Um, anchors kind of influence the performance expectations that we have, whether good or bad. Um, when investors are asked about ex expectations with nothing hypothetically presented, the medium response was 10% annually. So what does that mean? Well, what do you think we should make? Well, 10%. That's basically what the S&P 500 has done for 50, 60 years. So well, that's probably a reasonable answer. Right, but then if you ask them, uh, about a hypothetical return of 20% when making the same decision, expectations become 20%. 20, yeah. And, and it goes back to the, the the discussion we had with the lady we met that expected 16%. 
she'd seen that the market did 16%. So all of her decision-making was being anchored by this one number. Yeah, and this could, I think, you know, I've never actually thought of anchoring in these in these terms, but I think for people like similar to my age, I'm 31, um, I think this is pretty relevant because I remember in business and finance classes, you kind of learn that kind of the wheelhouse of reasonable expectations is eight to 12% return. And that's not just in the stock market, but just kind of in your business career, if you're doing business deals or whatever. And so if you would have graduated when I did 2011 and start your investing accounts, well, you've really only ever experienced a bull market up until March. And this information here was, it was good for me to read because kind of reined in my expectations because because I think I was going through it where, well, ever since I've been investing, it's just been great. Everything's been um, going up and probably higher than historical averages. So my own expectations for um, my personal portfolio, I think we're getting anchored into higher than really what they should be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So remember goals here though, one of the things a financial plan will set forth for somebody is what we kind of refer to as the fair rate of return goal. So you can kind of clear out the noise and really, like you said, rein in what expectations should be because there will be five, three, five, ten year periods of time that are away from the average. But as we stretch out further on this timeline, we'll all typically gravitate towards a normalized return, uh, normalized type return. Um, you know, my expectations, truthfully today, you think over, I think I started doing this in 2002, so 17-ish years. My expectations still haven't changed that much as to what an investor should make. If anything, it's probably been reined in even more. And it has to do with more um, economic policy and where bond rates are today. If you think about you know, in 2002 and 2003, I remember I bought my first house in 2003 and I got a rate of 5.75%. And my banker, who's still my banker today, man, this is a great rate. You may never see this again. Well, <laughs> I built a new house in 2017 and I figured out how many times I'd refinance with them or thought interest rates were going lower. I, I, bought, I bought a house in a different town and I, my rate when I sold was four and a quarter. I remember telling my wife, I'm like, man, I'm not sure we should sell this house at four and a quarter. We might wanna keep this loan for the long term. Well, I, I just bought a different house and I got a rate at 2.75%. Well, so rates are going down on, interest rates are going down on mortgages. So what it's kind of done though, from an investment standpoint is reined in my expectations of total return because if, if an investor Let's say it will make four or five percent on a bond 17 years ago. Today, the, the actual expected return on a bond is significantly lower, right? Yeah. So, so then, yeah, if you think about a person who has a 60% stock and 40% bond portfolio, the overall respected expected return today versus 17 years ago is actually lower. And it's more because of cash rates. I know there's a financial planning software I was using, or they give you the option to use either historical rates or expected rates. And if you go look at the historical rates, which is the historical returns for the stock market, the bond market, cash, the expected return on cash is like 4%. Well, if I run someone a financial plan using historical numbers, yes, it's gonna give me an accurate reflection of 
equity returns, but from day one, it's wrong because right. I'm expecting you to make 4% on cash. So those, all those rates have been discounted because of today's interest rate environment. So my expectations, um, they have evolved on the fixed income side, not so much in the equity side, because if you look at equities, they continue to perform near historical averages. Right. Right. And that's just, you know, and all those, just what you touched on there, how you make a plan. So that's an option in a financial planning software. That's just, that's all the more reason to work with a professional and have a good financial plan. I mean, how many people doing it for themselves would consider historical rates of cash return versus what they actually are now? And that's something where you know, professionals working with people like us, you don't have to worry about those things because we we do that for you. Well, and not all advisors are created equal because I know there's a lot of people that would just use the default in the system. Oh, that's easy. Because one thing it does, it makes a plan look prettier, right? right yeah. You think about it, yeah. if, if we're discounting cash rates to 1% or less, because that's what they are today, and someone else is using a cash rate of four or five, because that's a historical average, Whose plan looks better? Yeah, the four or five percent cash rate is going to look way better. And, and it goes back to the philosophy: over prom, under promise, over deliver. You'll never disappoint anybody. I don't want. I want to be conservative when we create these, so that hey, if things are better, no one's going to complain if they're better. But right. if I assume a cash rate and we stay a four, and we stay at one percent for the long term, we've set up a real unrealistic expectation for the consumer in that manner. And that, that's what we try to avoid. So you gotta be, these are questions people should ask if, you if you're doing a financial plan or if you have done one, dig in and say, hey, what are we expecting to make on bonds? What's the expected return on cash? And kind of get in the weeds a little bit um, and ask those questions because not all advisors are gonna do that. Right. Um, yep. So really what, the, the last one that, that we run into, and this is home country bias, we're, always, we're all biased to where we live. We think it's the greatest place, or most do. Um, and we tend to favor companies and products from our home country, just because that's what shapes our lives. And living in the United States, arguably the last 10 years, and maybe I'm biased, it's been the best place to invest from a global standpoint. If you look at the overall returns of an international index versus that of the US, the US has vastly outperformed international the last 10 years. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't own or buy international funds. It should all be part of a diversified portfolio. Yeah. And it's just natural for the where you live to shape um, not only your opinions on investments and maybe some of your outlook, but even simple things like the food you eat, the sports teams you follow, the activities you enjoy. And, you know, I'll just kind of second what you just said. This isn't a recommendation to just go out and buy international funds. Just keep in mind that there's opportunities um, throughout the entire world and a good financial plan can help determine which of those opportunities is going to help set you up for success moving forward. Well, I think that about wraps this show up. A couple of things I think people can take away from this, and that's the best advice for the do-it-yourself uh, do investors, just keep listening to the show. We'll try to give you as much information possible. Um, but there's nothing wrong with just buying a fund that tracks an index, right? Instead of trying to find the one golden nugget, 
that's going to solve all your problems. Just buy boring investments that track indexes. You get broad diversification and relative returns to that index. Yeah. If, if you like to work with a professional because you don't have the time, the desire, knowledge um, that can help you navigate your financial decisions and make a sound plan, you can reach us at btwellshow.com or give us a call at 319-531-7991. Also, I always tell people, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, give us a call, 319-531-7991, and we'd be happy to answer that on the show um, if you leave us that message. Hey, we appreciate everybody listening. Uh, until the next episode, thanks and have a great weekend. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.